So, Rusana, this week we have a really interesting interview with Yuliana First uh, about her new book, Flowers into Concrete, which is about Soviet hippies, and um, which is a topic that, A, I had no idea that they were Soviet hippies. It's also a topic that that appeals to me because I'm, I'm very interested in subcultures. And so I was wondering, like, have you ever been like a member or participants in a subculture? <laughs> yeah, I just read the question on our google dog and i was like i don't know like when i was a teenager i listened to eminem <laughs> does it count probably not um uh yeah i i think okay so i think i joined touristski club so like a tour tourist club i don't know it sounds weird in english but you know what i mean one of those like youth organizations uh, and we did a lot of hiking and backpacking. And I think there were elements of like non-formal non culture, informalna cultura. Um, they were part of it. Like we would make those, uh, we would make those bracelets out of, um, out of those uh, plastic pearls. Uh, you know, you know what I mean? Fenichki. Uh, <laughs> I don't know the Russian word, but I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, well, mm -hmm. well, that's not very subversive. Like, it wasn't a marginalized... You weren't part of a marginalized community, were you? Like, this sounds pretty, I don't know, normal. Yeah, but I mean, I don't <laughs> think that subculture means counterculture necessarily, right? Subculture sure, is just right. a, a certain group of people that identify themselves as being different from like the rest of society and I mean oftentimes it doesn't have very uh, I, I, it doesn't have any subversive or countercultural like elements to it were you ever into counterculture I don't think so no I was very <laughs> I was a straight A student listening to my dad and doing all the right things um yeah yeah I, w I was actually i was actually into several over the decades so okay tell me I was more <laughs> yeah i was in high school i was goth oh my god <laughs> and uh and then i was like involved later on i was involved in like making zines and the punk scene um, then of course, I think getting involved in leftist politics was, was also a subculture in many respects. Um, yeah. And so much so that my, my experience in, in, in being in these subcultures and reflecting on them later influenced the reason why I wrote my dissertation on the young communist league, because I was interested in how subcultures, um, regulate themselves. So like they have this idea, like take punk rock for example it has this idea of like you know freedom and anti-authority anti and all of this stuff rejection rejecting mainstream society um but it's it the way people in the punk scene um discipline and regulate each other uh is is really fascinated me particularly in the american case and i think this is um kind of coincides with something that Juliana says that I think we'll talk about after in the outro. And that is when, so when punk was under a corporate 
assault when corporations were starting to harvest it <laughs> it became it caused it caused an internal moral panic within punk in america where it all the questions of like what does it mean to be punk what is punk like it depended on what music you you listened to it depended on how you dressed it it had all of these like weird authoritarian structures to defend the subculture from it being pilfered by, you know, hegemonic mainstream corporate, you know, um, marketing and, and mainstreaming this stuff. So that, that kind of fascinated me, um, in, in, in looking at this as, and, you know, in a scholarly way, but so, so yeah. That's fascinating. I'm jealous of your youth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, it was it, fun. <laughs> Incidentally, uh, I think me becoming a leftist and uh, growing my, I don't know, environmental awareness and becoming more progressive happened in the same place where you were experiencing your youth years. <laughs> I think it only happened to me after moving to the Bay. That's what oh, I, guess yeah. I was trying to say. Yeah, well, San Francisco is definitely, and that was one of the that was breeding ground, <laughs> very much so. Um, and I should say that it in this time that I, I I talked about in terms of this moral panic over punk, like internally to the scene, San Francisco was basically the epicenter um, because because it produced one of the one of the most important magazines, uh, Maximum Rock and Roll was really, I mean, I remember all of these debates about this and Maximum Rock and Roll, about selling out and all this stuff. And, and frankly, it's quite interesting because um, when I was doing my research on the Komsomol, you had similar arguments, though, diff for different reasons and different content in like Komsomolskaya Pravda. Uh -huh, <laughs> so, uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> so it was all of this. And it was like for the Komsomol, it was always like, you know, what is appropriate dress? What is inappropriate dress? And um you know, it, it really, it, there's something, uh, the conclusion I came to is, or one of many, I should say, is that subcultures have an inherent authoritarianism embedded in them that's required to maintain its cohesion. Um, I guess what, what Juliana would call sistema. Yeah, I remember watching this movie about hippies, mm. speaking of. And it was a documentary about this one group um, who lived somewhere outside the Bay, I don't know, somewhere east of San Francisco, whatever. And they were talking about how they were supposed to have these meetings where they would democratically decide on like which course of action to take, what kind of decision to make, da da da. So like the entire community would vote, right? And what ended up happening is that <laughs> Um, there was just one leader who just basically, uh, yeah, like it became a very authoritarian kind of um, community where like this one guy who had a huge following was making all the decisions and there was like so much abuse and like violence and like none of that like really worked. And I was like so appalled after, I mean, it was like years ago and it just like speaks to the point that, um, oftentimes even with the best intentions right uh you can end up like 
with an organization that is even more authoritarian than like, say, the mainstream society that you were trying to subvert. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova. As you know, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. So if you'd like to support us, please go to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to the srbpodcast.org website and click on that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. So, Rusana, why don't you introduce our guest? Sure. Juliana First is the head of the Communist and Society Department Okay, no, no, no. Let's do it again. Juliana First. Juliana First is the head of the Communist and Society Department at the Leibniz Center for Contemporary History. She's the author or editor of several books and articles on Soviet youth culture, marginality, and counterculture in late Soviet socialism. Her first book was Stalin's Last Generation: Soviet Post-War Youth and the Emergence of Mature Socialism published by Oxford University Press in 2010. Her new book is Flowers Through Concrete, Explorations in the Soviet Hippie Land and Beyond, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Here's Juliana first. So you have this new book, Flowers Through Concrete, Explorations in Soviet Hippie Land, and it's... It's really um, an incredible book in many respects, just because of, you know, digging into this information and bringing these Soviet hippies to life. And I'm curious, just to start off the discussion, um, what are the origins of this book? Where, how did it come to being? Yeah, thank you for, for that question, because I must say this topic has really taught me that um, it isn't us who choose our topics, but our topics kind of choose um, us. I, I was like the least likely person to write a book on hippies, having been um, a pretty good bourgeois girl almost all my life, um, having gone to a Catholic school, grown up in bourgeois Munich uh, and way later than, than the hippie period. And, but I remember I once went barefoot into, into Munich and, and thought it was absolutely disgusting and would never do it again. But um, I basically, um, at the end of a postdoctoral scholarship, got asked by a colleague in Oxford, uh, Professor Gildea, who's a French specialist, if I would join a network working on 1968 and protest um, cultures um, and do the Soviet part. And I agreed without knowing anything about it, except that I was had done youth cultures beforehand in a different period. Um, and I set off to, to Budapest uh, to work, start in the RSA archive, as I usually do. Um, of course, the CIA was a good place to, to start any investigation. And came across a reference uh, about hippies in 1971, about this demonstration I, I write about quite a bit. Um, and I was kind of startled. I thought, oh, well, since there wasn't much 
other protests going on in 1968 in the Soviet Union. Um, maybe I'll go down the, the hippie route. Um, and I didn't know it would take me on 12 years. Um, and as I was researching these, and basically I started out with a, a very spontaneous action, which possibly showcases that um, I wasn't as unlike a hippie as I thought I would be because I had no idea how to start. And I, I wrote to a German-Russian author called Vladimir Kamina, who is quite famous in Germany. Uh, and he has written a book called Russell Disco, which is all about the sort of Russian emigre community and alternative scene in Berlin. And I thought, well, if anybody knows anything about hippies, he might. And I said, do you know how to find old hippies? And he said, well, I don't really, but there's this singer called Obka. And if you go to one of her concerts, you'll probably find a hippie. And I looked her up on her webpage and she had a concert in Riga two weeks down the line. And I, in a fit of madness on my own money, um, bought myself a ticket to Riga and went to this concert. And I did indeed find three hippies. Um, and they were the start of a long network of going down the lines. Um, and as I said, as I, as I kept on going and being more and more fascinated by this world and also just loving the, the research because you never knew what was around the corner. And I sort of realized that actually there is something in me, the sort of kind of anarchic streak, um, which probably does quite like hit piece. So there's something I learned about myself in, in writing just this book, um, which is why I'm convinced the topic was kind of waiting for me. Yeah, you know, that's the thing I was going to ask is, you know, you know you're look, thinking about your first book and a lot of the scholarship you work on, which is, you know, youth culture, counterculture, marginality, how they, they negotiate dominant culture or hegemonic culture. And I was wondering if there was some sort of personal background for you where you involved in counterculture yourself, but maybe the transgressiveness of it you know, coming up as a good bourgeois, <laughs> uh, this is what excites you. Is, is what, what draws you to this type of material? I guess it was, it's very human. I mean, I, there's sort of something in the method which draws me. I, w I was first, um, I mean, these, the oral history aspect was actually a prerequisite of that initial project I was involved in called Around 1968, which was conceptualized as an um, oral history project. And I realized that I, I like talking to people and I'm not bad in talking to people. And um, I like the sort of fieldwork aspect of going into people's homes. And that suits, I think, my my personality. I think the transgressiveness, um, and I tend to think a lot many people know, but um, basically I, I, when I say I went to a Catholic school, that wasn't all. I, I was actually, my parents were part of a quite sort of conservative Catholic community. And I rebelled when I was 16 and basically decided that I wouldn't want to go there anymore and that I wanted to have a freer life. And even though I didn't rebel and, and, and take drugs and, and disappear into, um, into the Wild West, um, I guess that that was a quite decisive rebellion. And I think I found that in these, these people, um, a sort of kind of admiration for um, a life they at some point decided to live according their, to their own way, even if it's often ended tragically. I, I still always admire that, that moment of self-determination. So you you went to this concert. You you said you found a few hippies. So what what is a Soviet hippie? Like, how do you identify one? Uh, a random problem. I actually I've, I've did the shortcut very early on and said I take everyone as a hippie who identifies as a hippie. So I worked completely on self description, uh, which actually bypassed because uh, Soviet hippies. Well, I don't want to be this condescending, but so when hippies have many Facebook groups and quite a lot of these Facebook groups are devoted to the question who is and who is not a hippie. So you can go absolutely mad if you delve into this, this question in any depth. Um, and there is indeed no 
definition. I mean, obviously there's style markers and um, there, there are sort of areas of belonging. And I, I mean, I, I sort of created a picture in the end of people, of course, who, who would fit my own working definition. But I always took first and foremost the subjective self-description. And especially in the beginning, in the early period, when people didn't know very much about hippies and when, you know, it takes time before your hair grows long, etc. So you might not have all the outer markers. Um, there, there, there are a lot of people who, who would sort of be considered borderline or it wasn't yet so much of a, a life decision. Later on, it gets easier once we come into the later 70s or mid 70s. The state is, persecutes hippies so much that basically you have to make up for or against decision of being a hippie. But in the period 67 to 71, which are the very early years, and there's a very fluid border between just being somebody who is likely wild and um, somebody who really steps outside the societal border. Um, and I was interested in all shades and aspects. And I was, of course, also interested in the way how these groups impacted onto the wider society. So in the end, for me, it wasn't so important to exactly determine to what degree somebody was a hippie. But I have an interesting anecdote there. When I presented part of this research in Berkeley, you know, Loskin told me that he was a 10% hippie. Um, so, uh, clearly, clearly he knew his percentage, but I, I immediately took the advantage and took an interview with him because 10% was enough for me. Right. <laughs> wow. That, that must've been, uh, it had some interesting tidbits about the, the workings of Yuri Sloshkin. Um, <laughs> you know, when we think of, when we think of hippies, right, of course we think of the West, we think of Berkeley, we think of, you know, American counterculture with all this stuff, Woodstock, et cetera. And I was, of course, when I, many years ago, when I, I learned that you were working on Soviet hippies, I was, of course, and I'm sure you've had this experience, people are like, there were Soviet hippies, really? <laughs> so talk about the origins. How does this culture develop in the Soviet Union? Well, like many things, and especially the sort of kind of beacons of, of counterculture, there are, there are several factors which conference together and, and then the time is ripe. And because the hippies really are quite remarkable culture for the Soviet Union, there were many, many hippies for many, many years. Um, so it really is a moment of something fit together. And I always sort of separated, I mean, one of them is music. Um, the way how music changed, the way how rock became beat, and especially the Beatles, changed uh, the, the live feeling of a whole generation. Um, and the, the music, um, also the way how it was transmitted, that you could um, transcribe it via megaphones, that records covers and record covers, which basically showed the actual people on the cover, came into the Soviet Union. That sort of gave the inspiration. The second thing is um, beat poetry. Um, which, of course, I, I say beat in, in inverted commas because um, I think some people did know about beatniks, others didn't. But um, the poetry moment, which is well documented during the fall, was very important and it fit very neatly in the beat poetry that then came out of America. And which, of course, in America, too, led directly into the hippie movement. I mean, you have people like Gitzberg, who sort of just crossover figures. Um, and of course, I think uh, without the thaw and the, the sort of kind of failed reforms of the thaw and the, the disappointment that went with it, uh, there wouldn't have been any hippies either. So that whole idea of somehow um, making Soviet reality better by reforming it had been tried, tested, failed and been discarded by that generation that came afterwards. Um, and then, of course, um, it came from the nomenklatura. Um, like most Soviet subcultures, it had a big boost by very privileged children getting access to information from the West, um, which at that time included all sorts of hippies. And I mean, I have direct 
evidence and interviews with people who came as diplomatic children back to Moscow and brought all that stuff and the ideas um, with them. So to a certain extent, hippies came from the West and to a tiny extent, they also came from the East because, of course, one of the most important terms of how hippies define themselves, the word kaif, um, which is sort of pleasure, is an Arabic uh, word. Um, and it, it shows that, of course, it also tapped into a culture of being chilled and um, widening of conscience, especially through drugs, which has an Eastern tradition and, of course, was somewhere dormant in the Soviet culture as well with that sort of whole extension into the Caucasus, into Soviet, uh, Central Asia. But um, I always said it with some reservation because, interestingly, most of the Eastern esoteric culture, which sort of defines hippies, arrived for Soviet hippies via the West. So it was kind of an extension of a Western import rather than a direct Eastern import. But something is there too. So you you have this piv- there's this pivotal moment there's a demonst- demonstration of hippies in 1971 and you call this a turning point in Soviet hippie history what talk about what that turning point is and why is it so significant yeah i mean it's really my one of my two favorite stories um about hippies and i, I was lucky I, it varied much to them already far down the line i got a lot of evidence about this event which I very early heard about it, like literally my first visit in Moscow, actually I was staying with somebody renting a room and her friend was in the kitchen as you do, we had sort of late evening kitchen discussions. And I said, I'm researching hippies. And she said, yeah, I was at this hippie demonstration, 1971 in, in, in the, at NGU. And I was like, what? Um, I, I'd never imagined there would be a demonstration. And she said, yes, I got arrested, but I don't really want to talk about it. And uh, tragically, she died very soon afterwards and never came around interviewing her. But I always knew about this this demonstration. Um, And gradually, as I was researching, the picture came together. And just as I start at the beginning, basically, Moscow hippies, we can trace to 1967. And the hippies themselves in Russia um, and Moscow believe that their starting point is 67, where people started assembling in some tunnels leading to Red Square, what's called the Toba, and started doing music and talking about hippies. Um, And there's a whole period where it seems like there isn't any real clear directive, um, either on the state level or on the city level or on the Komsomol level of what to do with these people. And it's partly, of course, because the message, the official message is very contradictory. In, in the official press, um, Western hippies are described a little bit condescendingly, but usually with sympathy, because after all, they were children demonstrating against the Vietnam War. They were anti-materialist, they were anti-capitalist. So all that was wrong with them is they weren't straightforward communists. And there's, there's always this sort of uh, sentence at the end of every hippie description of if only they would be ideologically more fortified, um, that would one could really work with them. And even though I mean, at, at that time isn't free of persecution, I have evidence of persecution in a time of um, even of, of um, psychiatric hospitals. It is a relatively less fair period. And especially in Moscow, it is sort of in this, within these sort of nomenclature children. They taught me we do whatever we wanted. Um, and one of these um, children, he wasn't actually even um, really high nomenclature. His father was a KGB officer in the border guard. So he was military and KGB at the same time, but in some sort of what's considered a low low level of, of, of privilege. Um, and this guy, Yora Borakov, who had the nickname Sonse, he got it into his head. He had to do an anti-Vietnam demonstration. And where this idea really comes from, I 
I think there are several. I mean, I, there, of course, this is what American hippies did. So he wanted to do one too. I think also he had, he was in the end, and I have, um, this is just the evidence I found sort of halfway through my, my research. Um, he's dead, but his brother is alive. And when I interviewed him, the first thing he did, he put a big box of papers on the table and said, this is all what I have for my brother. And I almost fainted because I had so little written evidence, especially contemporary evidence. And this guy was a complete, what we call in Russian, a grafoman. He wrote extensively and mostly about himself. So he, he wrote all the short stories about um, what motivated him. And, and clearly he was craving his father's approval. He was craving society's approval. It all sounds very strange for a hippie. But he, he just loved the music. He loved the style. But he, he wanted to really be a good Soviet child. And he thought if he would do this demonstration and it would demonstrate that hippies are for the same causes as the official Soviet message, then they would be recognized as, as worthy members of society. This view was not shared by all the people who followed him, but this is definitely the view he wrote down in his, in his um, autobiographical stories. But I mean, of course, it, it always um, ends tragic. So he went to, to Mossad yet to ask for permission and was denied. Um, and then two days, suddenly before the 1st of June, he was given permission and he was a bit skeptical. And he said, this is what he writes in his, his um, self-biographical story. Um, I think that by this stage, um, the KGB had already decided that this was going to be a good moment to have an overview of who is associated with the hippies. Um, and um, it was all a provocation. There's, of course, also the other variation out that uh, he himself was recruited as an agent provocateur. Um, but the upshot is the same. Um, before people and people have assembled in the inner courtyard of, of the um, old building at NU. Um, just opposite the Kremlin, really, um, and uh, got arrested and put into big buses. And it, I've been trying to, to, to get numbers. People speak somewhere between 600 up to 3,000. Um, it's, it's a pretty, I mean, for Moscow, it's a pretty large number. I mean, I can't think of anything else, really, where there were an assembly of 3,000 people. And they had the full thing, the placards of why do Vietnamese children cry, etc. And... Nothing really happened. A few people got 14 days of um, forced labor, like one of the community labor. Uh, but about a year later, all the males who got um, collected were um, not arrested, but were recruited literally overnight out of their houses and, and put to the Chinese border for compulsory military service, which of course they were liable to do anyway. Um, and of course, over Sonse, ever since there hung that sort of um, suspicion that he might have been um, a traitor. After all, and I think that um, for him personally was a, down, a, a, a turning point, but it really was for the movement, it was a huge turning point. Um, insofar as it was not clear, it was not okay to be a Soviet hippie. Until then, there was a sort of ambivalence. Um, and it also meant that people now had to make a choice. You could not be a student at NGU in the prestigious journalist faculty where quite a lot of the hippies came from. Um, and be unhappy. You had to make a choice. And ironically, what you get is it's a smaller movement, um, but of much more committed, hardcore people who actually develop what is then becomes known as the Sistema, or is already known as the Sistema, um, the sort of network of hippies, which is um, very well suited to survive the Soviet period. I mean, and, and as I argue, they actually become symbiotic with, um, with the Soviet system and therefore exist until the early 90s. Let me let me ask you about this sistema and and you know the culture 
writ large of Soviet hippiedom because, you know, as you know, and we all of us know that counterculture is, is a, it's a performance. It's a performance of particular ethics, particular style, particular practices, consumption, et cetera. And, and as, as you started out with, you know, who is a Soviet hippie? Well, a Soviet hippie is someone who calls themselves a hippie. But after this period of 1971, you get, of course, abscription of who's a hippie by the state and the police in particular. So what are some of the aspects of the systema of, and of a hippie, of hippie culture? I mean, for the system, I mean, I've, I've asked people quite a lot about that and I got quite some interesting answers. So um, I, you are hippie in the eyes of the system at the moment you accept it as one. Which, of course, is a completely circular argument, but it makes more sense than one thinks because a lot of that uh, um, kind of recognition in late socialism is, has that circular aspect, sort of, you know, soy, you know your own. Um, and how you rec- make yourself recognized as your own, there's sort of certain ways of how you can manipulate your exterior or you can say certain things or you can listen to certain music and that gives out these vibes. Um, so obviously clothing was an important um, part, uh, the jeans, the, the flared jeans, but also the sort of kind of ornamental blouses. Um, some people who were more extreme also face painted um, but really, I mean, one has to put that into context. It was pretty wild for that period. Um, and then, of course, music was a big, I mean, music, I think, was the biggest recruiter because um, that is how everybody identified and also how that's, that's, that sense of belonging. And, of course, um, these underground sessions of underground bands, even though everything is sort of shady, you know, I say underground, but they're not really. They kind of play in, in institutes, et cetera. They're just sort of, they're not recognized, they're not allowed to take money, but sometimes they do make money, so you kind of get an underground economy as well. Um, and then it, the groupies and, and people who sort of support them, they become part of that circle too. And, and there's sort of kind of homology of style developing, very similar to what we already had with Stiliaga. You, you, you listen to a certain music, you speak a certain way, you look a certain way, you dance a certain way. But what is interesting, what the hippies do, what the Stiliaga didn't do and why they become such a big force um, is um, they ritualize themselves very early on. And of course, already the term Systema alone shows that they, they have that sort of self-awareness um, that somehow they have to represent something, which is, of course, Sons's, um sort of point that um, he kind of understands that in order to make that a permanent force, um, they have to be self-reflexive. So... They call themselves Systema, they start taking photos of themselves, they start exchanging their photos, they start meeting at certain times, at certain places, they start having a sort of season, a calendar, and hippie time. And before you know it, basically by the mid-70s, you have that parallel universe, which is intrinsically entwined with the official universe, but it, it runs pretty parallel. It's really interesting how organized it becomes. Um, I mean, is it does it become more organized because of the i'm trying to figure out how to formulate this question correctly um is it does it become so organized and ritualized because of the dangers of participating in this culture particularly with the authorities or is it something about soviet culture that lends to the the desire for organization and structure and ritual I think both. Um, and it's really quite striking. I mean, I, I talked to, I mean, once I got into the sort of to the, the, the linchpins of the movement, um, especially of that sort of second generation who start organizing the summer camps, um, 
I, I sometimes talk to them and I thought you would have really made a great comsomol organizer too. And interestingly, I mean, for example, Sons' brother makes a huge career in the Kopsomol, Um and he makes a classical Kopsomol and then um, KGB career and, uh, and then he's still active in politics. So you can see it could have gone the other way. Um, and it's, it's actually, it's usually the love for the music that catapults them out of, um, out of that system. Um, but so, yeah, they, they are definitely socialized. They're socialized to think they should represent something more than just pleasure. So they can't just say, we're just here for the sake of it. That is not a Soviet style. Um, and then they're socialized because this is what they have been imbibing with their mother milk. And then, of course, your first point is valid too. Having a very stable other helps. Um, because you never have to make sense of the contradictions within your own movement, which already, of course, starts with the fact that they're emulating something which is clearly American and they know it's American, while at the same time they're emulating something which is anti-American. Um, and also, of course, that hippie ideals have an awful lot of communist thought in it. Um, but these are sort of contradictions they, um, they don't have to make sense of because they have that other, they can constantly define themselves. So, of course, the danger, I mean, every, even just going out on the street is an adventure. I mean, somebody said to me, every time I went out, it was like going to the war. It was like going to the trenches. You, you, you went out and you looked about two meters ahead if there was somebody who would harass you or if it was an official or a policeman. Um, and it, it created a certain style of life, which, of course, if you were part of that style of life, the coherence became stronger. Yeah. Well, here's a question from the chat that actually dovetails with with the question I have. And um, I, I'm, you know, this this issue of the West and the imaginary West and how it fits in. And this goes along with the question being asked. Uh, I'd love to hear more about the anti-Vietnam War activism of Soviet hippies. Was the crackdown of the 1971 protests purely about who was protesting the war? Or was there something unique in their anti-war messaging that did not mesh with the part, Communist Party's priorities? And, and that goes, this is what I find so interesting is that th there is this double movement of embracing, say, America or being inspired by America, but then being a critic of the most, you know, one of the biggest events of, that America is engaging in. So uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, so it's it's definitely the style because um, Sonsu gets, I mean, and I know this all because he writes a very long short story about that and I have it confirmed by some of the people who were participants of the, uh, the uh, demonstration. He goes down to the detail of taking down the slogans he's supposed to write on the placards from Mosoviet. So they say, this is what you're allowed to write. And he goes around and he controls everybody who makes posters and says, you're only allowed to use these five um, slogans. So in terms of, um, I think the content, he's, he's fully on message. Um, well, the problem is, of course, of course, the way he looks, um, and they look. Uh, and the other thing is, it's, it's spontaneous. And it's interesting if one looks at other anti-Vietnam protests, because of course, the Vietnamese students have a famous one. I think it is, um, 67 or 68. They have a huge demonstration in front of the American embassy and throw stones. And actually the Soviet authorities crack down really hard on them. Like they beat them up and they uh, arrest them. And I know of another protest in a dormitory in MDU um, where Vietnamese students uh, staged a sit-in and they all get arrested. Um, even though they, of course, believe their own message. And what, what can't be tolerated is the spontaneity of it, is that they have their own mind. And, um, and that is, of course, also again in his shop. So he says he wanted to show that we can say it, not that you say it for us, that we can say it. But that's exactly the cry, because um, 
what if if they start saying that, what are they going to say next? Um, it is, of course, a KGB tactic. However, that does change, one has to say. Um, they, um, at about 1780, there's a decided change in KGB tactics where they start to embrace parts of these kind of youth cultures that they create the Leningrad Rock Club, they create the Moscow Rock Laboratory. And rather than clapping down right at the source, they say, okay, we, we, we have little curated spaces where people can say that sort of kind of as a valve. So they, they start seeing these youth cultures as an as a venter through which some of the steam can can be released with moderate success. Right, right. Policing the margins of sorts. Um here's here's another question that, that's actually quite interesting too, is is in terms of the influence and, and informing Soviet hippie culture um, what, if you can speak to this, what role did film play in terms of particularly films imported from, say, either non-Western countries like from India or elsewhere, particularly for this Eastern influence and, and other imported types of media and art? So the hippies are very good and really catching any snippet of, of hippie than there is. So whenever there's a newsreel um, running in the cinema, they, they, they show some hippies in some Western countries. Um that that goes around like wildfire. I must say, on film, they're surprisingly um, poor. I mean, it, it, that doesn't mean that not to hippies haven't watched films, but there is no consensus. There's a couple of books that they cite as as sort of a canon. That is not true for film, and, and um, there's a certain I don't want to say racism, but certainly prioritization. I mean, the West was definitely what was got them. And um, they went, for example, to the African students in their own dormitories or at uh, Nomoba University because they sold them jeans, but they had absolutely no interest in um, whatever was going on in Africa, which of course was decolonization, etc. at the same time. The Angela Davis, who was such a star among a sort of official youth, um, does not register on the hippie horizon at all. And the same is true for, for the rest of the global South. I really have sort of, I want to attempt to, to, to somehow be that because also, I mean, you know, I could have written this what beautiful global story, but the truth is it is in the end a Western story um, rather than a global one. And um, that, of course, is interesting in its own right because the sort of globality was in front of them and they rejected that globality. They wanted the Western globality. Um, so... Yeah, there's really very little contact. Um, and, and certainly when they go east, when they actually then go to Central Asia and then later in the 90s, when some of them go to India to find the gurus they have admired and they quite often come back and say, well, it's not really our thing, sort of Indian caves. Um, so they're like Nicholas Wurlich, you know, who sits in New York and um, uh, and then and, and does Eastern esotericism from New York, uh, but they're not not so much into that sort of um, on the ground work um, really in the East. I mean, they are now, they, they go to Goa, there's, there's some people who now are, are, are now frequently in Goa, but they, they, they're doing that very westernized version of, of, of the East. Um, so that in itself is an interesting story. So, you know, this actually makes me think, was, was the hippie movement primarily a... Uh, Slavic, in in terms of Russian, maybe Belarusian, Ukrainian, and the ethnic in terms of the ethnic diversity, if there was ethnic diversity in amongst hippies. So there was ethnic diversity in far as the Baltics um, were very highly represented, um, Ukraine and and Russia anyway, and and of course um, a lot of Jewish hippies. Um, 
it wasn't diverse insofar. I mean, there were hippies who were from the Caucasus, who were Armenian, Georgian, but they usually were families who either had lived or were living or had very strong ties to to the Slavic uh, regions of the Soviet Union. And the same is true. There was a hippie courage in Tashkent, but as far as I could determine, uh, it was entirely made up of of Russian Tashkentis. Um, uh, or of 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 Jewish. I mean, it was mixed ethnically, but it did not um, have any native um, Uzbeks or Kyrgyz. Um, doesn't be, want to say that nowhere there isn't an Uzbek or Kyrgyz hippie, but it's definitely um, it in in this in these cultures which had a, a more traditional outlook, especially on masculinity, um, they found it very hard to survive. Um, and even the Caucasian hippies or the Georgian Armenian hippies, I I did know they left. Um, Yerevan or Tbilisi very quickly um, and they said honestly we, we would have died um, if we had stayed there um, and in Tashkent there was a pretty large community but um, you know it wasn't it wasn't as large as in the in the Russian towns and therefore it mixed together with um, Bohemians and actually the sort of underground gay movement and um, it, it's, it's actually Tashkent is a really interesting place where I would quite like to go back and, and follow up on, on what I've I've learned, but um, it there wasn't any real. Um, there was not a large um, Uzbek, Kyrgyz, Kazakh, um, Tajik community. That that actually dovetails nicely with my next question, and that is, you know, like in most many societies, nonconformity is is marginalized. It's it's demonized, and in some cases, it's seen as a symptom of mental illness of sorts. And and you talk about the role of madness and insanity in a really interesting way as both a, um, a form of self-identification, but also persecution. So talk about this interesting place of, of madness in this culture. Yeah, so madness for hippies is really very interesting. And of course, we have to remember that at the same time in America, hippies called themselves freaks. So that... Um, that sort of kind of madness and freakishness was inbuilt in the in the whole style um, and ideology. But I think in, for Soviet hippies, it had a very uh, practical angle, which was that basically by pretending to be uh, mentally non-stable, you could get out of the army. And this is what hippies did ever since the early 1970s. Again, Sonsa is the sort of first. Sonsa gets injured during his army service and he gets hit in the head by a crane ends up in a hospital where he also learns about um, mixing pharmaceuticals for drug usage. But he then basically uh, pretends his head never gets better, possibly never does, but um, and gets dismissed. Um, and um, even before that, people knew that if you uh, pretended certain symptoms, I mean, you actually only had to say you didn't want to go to the army and you believed in peace rather than war, uh, was usually enough to give you a schizophrenic or pathologia uh, diagnosis. The problem, of course, was this was stamped forever onto your registration card. Um, and you were not, I mean, the few citizens' rights you had uh, were even diminished. You could be collected from the street literally at any moment. Um, and the sort of hardcore hippies, the ones who are in the inner circle, they literally get arrested and put into psychiatric hospital for every high holiday. And then in Moscow 1980, um, the psychiatric units are all overflowing with not only hippies, but dissidents and beggars and uh, it was it was the, the the way of of getting people off the street um and the the, the evidence and the testimony about uh, the psychiatric units varies um some people have actually quite fond memories they say the doctors were okay they say, i can say you just sit there 
Others have the full gauntlet of one flew over the cocker's nest with forced meditation. But of course, um, and especially the people who took drugs, there was always a slight worry that maybe, maybe they are indeed leaving sanity. And um, plus the sort of identification as the dissidents did as well of saying, actually, you are the insane and we are the sane. And when I spoke to people, I could feel sometimes this nervousness that this whole game they played with the authorities about madness somehow actually could make them mad. And, and uh, that they were afraid they would get stuck in these, these units forever because you had to play it very finely. If you overplayed your symptoms, you might get stuck for half a year or even a year. And if you didn't play them hard enough, you might have to be sent to the army. So... Um, it was, and uh, there's something I, I, I don't know if you know, but um, a lot of my subjects, that the ones who are still alive and the ones who are internet savvy, um, they collected themselves in a Facebook group and they ran my book through a translation machine. And so I have had the privilege of actually having my subjects comment on my book, uh, which was quite nerve-wracking, but it was very interesting. When they came to the chapter on madness in the St. Catrick Hospital, during my interviews, I always had to dig a little bit before they would tell me the nasty stuff. And you could tell how it was still something that grappled with it because they had got used to overcoming it with bravado. But actually in the discussion that followed online on, on that chapter, um, they, were, um, they were actually opening up just how horrible it had been for them. And in, in, a, in, a, in a way, I must say, if I were to write that chapter again, for in, in order to reflect what I know now, I probably would have to emphasize actually the repressive uh, moment more than I, I do. I, partly because I wanted them to sort of, I, I wanted them to be uh, these warriors or to, to, to somehow manipulate the system in a way how their, their most feared tool of repression could be turned around the, and then become a, a space of liberty. And that, it, it kind of is true. It is true. I mean, there's nothing wrong in my interpretation. But it also is true that um, they were given the horrible drugs, which basically reduced them to absolutely vegetative states, um, insulin, um, lows, which then were force created by dropping certain medications. And um, it was very sobering to read what came out in that discussion um, post-book, interestingly. Well, you know, it's interesting that this issue of of trauma, really, I mean, this is what it sounds like to me is is them, uh, you know, in reading your book now with so many years later, maybe it's easier to recount and tell these traumatic episodes, but that makes me want to ask. So how did they regard you? You know, here you're this scholar from, you know, England slash Germany, you showing up, you're like, I'm interested in Soviet hippies. What, what did they, how did they accept you in terms of their interactions and suspicions or enthusiasm? Well, I was very worried because instead, I mean, I'm, I wasn't like the predestined person to uh, to research a topic. And everybody else I met on the way who was kind of researching it um, were people who were very much from within. But I came to the conclusion that actually my outsider status kind of helped in the end um, because I wasn't, I was definitely outside that whole question. I mean, there's a lot of um, infighting still um, among these hippie communities and social media certainly hasn't helped, uh, especially about the who has the authority to define who belonged and who really was truly there, et cetera. And I, I clearly was not part of that. I, um, I don't think they saw me as a scholar and I never kind of forced myself onto them as a scholar because I didn't think it would be helpful. I mean, a, you know, uh, in Russia, forcing yourself as a female scholar is, is probably the wrong tactic anyway, but 
in that particular setting, um, there was a healthy um, distrust towards scholars. So I think there was just somebody who sat there and asked questions and um, people, I, I, I don't know, but people, I, people liked me in, in, in general. And I was always really touched how much they told me and how they would even come later and tell me stories. It was therefore particularly difficult when the book now came out and they translated it. Of course, there were moments where they were a little bit, wow, we didn't quite know you would use it that way. Or I think there was a kind of realization that maybe I wasn't quite that um, innocent wallflower um, just listening to them. I think um, they had sort of forgotten that I was up about to do something with these, these, this testimony. And even though, of course, I always asked them, are you happy to be cited? Are you happy to have this interview used, etc.? Um, I think to to then see it black and white, um, especially because, of course, I mean, I have analyzed the stories where I felt it was really getting into most intimate details. But um, but still, I think it came as a shock to people that, that actually I was a scholar. Um, some people were pleasantly surprised. The things of people were, um, were more, um, yeah, just surprised. Um, I haven't really spoken to them since because I haven't been back to, to Russia. But um, the most difficult thing actually was that with the arrival of social media, I, I never disentangled myself after the interviews to a large extent because these people became my Facebook friends. And um, so there is this, the interview somehow never stopped. And I, I at some point actually stopped reading Facebook because I couldn't deal with any more information. Also, I could tell the information. It just added layers of interpretation and manipulation. It didn't actually help. Um, but the, 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 the researcher subject relationship actually is, is something I, I still think about a lot because it was a very complex and intense moment uh, with this book. What about drugs? What, what, what was the drug of choice for Soviet hippies and, and how did they get a hold of drugs? So the drug of choice was, I mean, the, the, the light drug of choice was Mami Johanna, which uh, wasn't very difficult to, to get hold of. Um, and that was around from the very early beginning and other people uh, smoked it. The, the second most popular choice was morphine, which was around, especially in the beginning. So in the late 60s, there seems to have been a morphine craze, which of course was facilitated by the fact that... Um, you could get Soviet medication relatively easy um, without prescription. Um, morphine wasn't one of them, but uh, other things like codeine uh, were. But there were so many loopholes. I mean, that whole system was, I don't want to say corrupt, but it had so many sidesteps. Um, so they got it from um, relatives who were dying of cancer. They got it by sleeping with ambulance drivers. They got it by buying it on in Sakoniki, where there was a morphine market. Um, they got it by connections from their parents if they were in the nomenclatura. I mean, Stalin's grandson was a famous morphine addict uh, who died of his morphine addiction. Um, and then, I don't know when it comes in. I mean, I guess it's also one of the things which has always been around. But from about the late 60s, I have evidence of people going and collecting these poppy butts um, and making their what's called muck, um, which of course only means poppy, but in the hippie parlance, muck is... Um, the raisin, the boiled up raisin, which you inject, or you can make coconut, which is a, a tea. Um, and that really becomes the choice of people who are really devoted to to drugs um, until something called Vint arrives, which um, is a sort of um, amphetamine. And the hippies learn to, to synthesize this via some non-finished chemistry education. There is a rumor out there that actually the KGB put wind into their mix uh, because that really ruined people in the 80s and 90s. Um, 
and um, and then there is LSD, but very limited, uh, mostly a small Moscow group in the 80s where one guy makes a connection to um, a psychiatric experimental unit and uh, seems to have got a very large stash of LSD. But quite a few people who I know who tried LSD didn't know how to use it correctly and it took far too much and have this horrible trips which lasted five days. And yep. Because they weren't told that you had to wait and like they took something and then water and then like, oh, it doesn't work. So we took a little bit more and a little bit more and then they sort of end up taking sort of several milligrams, which um, supposedly um, is, is quite a lot more than, than what is recommended. Now, throughout your book, there is this interesting interplay between on the one hand, this hippie subculture is trying to stand outside of uh, dominant Soviet culture. But on the other hand, you, you also emphasize that as much as one stands outside of it, you're still within it. So I'd like to have you talk about that interplay. And, and this comes from uh, something you wrote, and I'll, I'll read it. You write that, and in between these two poles, the rejection of the known Soviet reality and the desire for the unknown other, where angels walk the earth, was where Soviet hippies were made. What, what do you mean by that? Well, thank you for, for calling up this, this phrase, because I, I always liked it, but uh, some people have already told it's pretty as a term. It, of course, refers to that um, first quote with which I start my introduction of uh, this, this uh, hippie called Kiss, and he sees these other two hippies who are legendary, as a settlement of failure, and he's like, oh, wow, they were like angels. Um, and what I wanted to say is that, um, of course, the hippies, they were on the one hand, they were this completely utopian dream of, you know, a society which is uh, run by love and tenderness and um, and honesty, but a certain, I mean, honesty in, in, in views of like honestly living your life, authentic to yourself, um, which, of course, is a kind of sort of heaven. It's, it's, it's a place where angels walk. Um, but it also had that element of just people being basically very pissed off with Soviet reality. What all of hippies have together and what they all put at the beginning of the hippie journey is that they hated living in Soviet reality for various reasons, boredom or because of lies. Or, but it, they really have an almost physical reaction to the reality in which they live in. So it's, it's, it's a very concrete reaction to something very real. But then this also has that element of this utopian and dreamlike. And, and that is what I wanted to ex express here. Of course, de facto, as their life sort of unfolded, um, they, with that system, they, they make, they start to sort of arrange themselves with Soviet reality. And it actually turns out, ironically, that Soviet reality is, is not the worst place for a hippie movement and possibly better than capitalism. Insofar as, of course, the movement never gets commercialized, um, which is what exactly what happens um, in the West. Um, <laughs> somebody clicks on that sort of flower power is, is also something you can market on clothing. And, uh, and, and the hippies famously themselves become quite good entrepreneurs. Um, and uh, that sort of, of course, rings in the end of the movement. That doesn't happen in the Soviet Union. And also every space the hippies occupy, it's kind of an empty space. So they have these cafes in, in places, especially in Moscow, but also in, in Leningrad, Saigon, of course, the famous one, but also in the above. And of course, they can occupy this place and make it a hippie place because these places have no branding. They're not already occupied by something else. Um, they're just these spaces which were very functional, you know, a, a chair and a few tables. And yes, the, the waitresses get pissed off because the hippies always have like one black coffee for five hours. Um, 
but it's 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 actually an easier space than you know if you have uh, these these commercialized um, spaces. And then, of course, it's cheap. It's cheap to live in the Soviet Union, even if you do some shitty job like in a boiler room or in a, a lot of them are in theaters and lighting or nude models. Um, you collect a few bottles and your sort of your day is, is, is made, especially if your sort of your demands are not very high. So um, and you have guaranteed housing and you also have a guaranteed job because you have to work. So somehow the system doesn't let you fail completely. And then it provides this kind of, um, I mean, for a long time, there's all this evidence how policemen that just didn't know what Man Johanna smelled like. So that they, the hippies were smoking on Red Square underneath the nose of people. And um, it just, it's, it's actually in a funny way, a certain free society, which of course, in complete contrast to what I write in the chapter about madness, about being imprisoned and force-fed medication. But both, both of these realities are kind of true. I mean, that's the, the kind of schizophrenia paradox of late socialism itself. Um, so I'm actually, at, the longer I researched, I, I wasn't so surprised anymore because initially I was like, how come these hippies existed like into the 90s? Um, how come it, this, this doesn't move forward? But actually they, they come into this very stable embrace with the system they object to um, and, and there they remain. And because the system doesn't change, very much. They don't change very much as, uh, either. And, and it really actually starts breaking apart in Perestroika because then the system does change and all the sort of stable others they have built up start collapsing. And then there's a sort of hippies as a movement, as a systema actually are in decline and, and in the 90s even more so because the wild capitalism really is sort of a very bad, I mean, a deadly ground for hippies and a lot of people die um, in this time. And now it's only social media, which gives kind of a coherence again. But of course, social media also blends out people then uh, as much as it unites people. So it's, it's different. Is there a, um, of all, you know, of all of the people you talk to over this decade period of research, which, is there one person that stands out as a quintessential Soviet hippie? Like if you, if you had to, if you had to commercialize them, who would be the, you know, the symbol, the guy, or 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 woman, the woman. It is actually a woman. It is this woman, uh, Ophelia, and of course, I never met her. She died in nineteen ninety one. Um, she is one of the earliest, and I think she stands out for me because people, a lot of people I I met uh, were her lovers um, and knew her intimately, and they all say she took that. She internalized the hippies fully. Um, she devoted her whole life to it. That that was her cause. Um, plus, she was that sort of very beautiful elf-like person who, because of her tailoring, um, really did sort of look like an angel. She is one of the people Kiss um, encounters and says, I, I thought they were uh, looking like, like angels. So she has this incredible creativity, which is very much a hallmark, I think, of, of Happy Death. Because of course, it's, it's, there is a certain self-selection. Not every youngster becomes a hippie. Um, and there is a certain drive uh, these people have, and she really embodies that. Um, and um, she sort of kind of makes the best of late socialism. She, she, she lives this really very full life, uh, participates in this exhibition, has communes, um, has lovers, um, gets drug addicted, but she's also very fragile. And then, of course, um, she has that incredible... And it's, it's really, and that actually is, is one of the points, but it's in the books of mine as well, to tell it now as well. 
It's something which was whispered to me very early on, and, and it was it's one of these open secrets. She disappeared in 1991 and then turned up in the Moscow River three months later dead, and nobody really knew what happened to her. But um, what happened to her was that she came out of a rehab um, and saw her old friends, including her latest boyfriend, and uh, they brewed this thing called Vint, which is an amphetamine, and you supposedly shouldn't die of it, but she did. And... The people who were with her, who might have been one or up to three other people, got scared. They didn't want to call the police. They didn't want to call the ambulance. And so they just threw her into the river. Um, and, and then, of course, it shows the sort of kind of the fragility of, of that life and what it had become. Because um, in the end, the fear and the drug was stronger than the sort of kind of... Um, morality or uprightness, I think they wanted to, to embody. I mean, they sort of kind of knew, which is why, of course, nobody really talked about it. It was wrong to just throw a person into the river, hoping that she's dead. Um, on the other hand, she also was always a warning to me that, of course, you can read everybody's life from the tragic end and say, look, this is how it all started. This is how the tragedy started. But that wouldn't actually give justice to her because she had this incredibly... Um, full 20 years of where she lived a life um, very, very different to, to a Soviet life. I mean, of course, entangled with Soviet reality, but really showcased that um, there were other alternatives, alternative realities open. Um, and, and also, I mean, of course, she was a woman leader. I mean, it's the hippies are the first time that, that really women do make an impact in these subcultures. Um, and we know, I mean, in Soviet official cultures, um, we have basically no women leaders and uh, in subcultures, we didn't used to have women leaders. So for this culture to, to breed her and other, a couple of other really strong females, um, I always found out, I mean, I, I was hunting her and I was hunting her legacy. And one of the great sort of sadnesses is that I could never recover her archive, um, which, so I, 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 I she, she is the quintessential hippie for me, but um, I have to live her through the evidence of others. Um, and finally, you know, you've, your scholarship over the years has dealt with the post-war period, the thaw into this, now into the 70s and into the 80s. And this series, as I started out, is about looking at this period and trying to understand what it was all about. Um, so what does your story of the Soviet hippie tell you about life in a late state, state in late Soviet state socialism? What what have you like walked away with that you've learned? Well, first of all, of course, there was an incredibly happening, interesting, pluralistic period, which is not what you would usually um, think of. Um, but there, there's sort of paradox in it. And, and I mean, I'm, for example, somebody who would say, you know, stagnation was kind of real because people perceive that stagnation. Um, even if we can showcase that, of course, there were lots of interesting things happening on the official sphere as well. From the personal perceptive of most people I talked to, they did feel that this country, the, the society was stagnating and they even use that word quite often or in very similar ways. But what is, of course, the irony that that sense of stagnation breeds this incredible creativity. So you have stagnation, but actually rather than this just, it's, it doesn't mean that the, the thing gets ossified, but actually that it's sort of like a dead tree on top, but you have below, you have all these branches coming out with really interesting uh, variations. Um, and it, it also, of course, it throws a different light on, on Perestroika because um, it doesn't, 
seem like as if Perestroika was only a sort of economic program or done out of economic necessity, but that there was a sort of kind of societal pressure building up, um, which necessitated Perestroika, but also I think there's a long way to explain of why in 1991, when the Soviet Union ended, nobody went onto the street to protest its demise. I mean, it's what I find always is not like the question of why did the Soviet Union end, but why did nobody sort of protest it? Um, and I think if one looks at these cultures, you see why, because basically you have this alternative universes being built up and the superstructure falls apart, but the universes remain at least initially intact. It then becomes apparent it can't live without the superstructure, but that's not apparent in December 1991. And um, I think that is really sort of, uh, it goes a long way to explaining of, of um, what happened um, in, in 1991. But it also actually goes a long way to, to showcase of what is happening in Russia now. And whenever I sort of, I read these articles about Putin this and Putin that, and I think, you know, but somewhere there is that topic for a future researcher who's going to look at that band of people living somewhere. And um, I mean, it's more obvious in today's Russia that there are these underground and subcultures going on. But but still, uh, it, it really is a strong reminder that um, this this country has always been uh, div uh, diverse and pluralistic. Um, and um, and, and, and we are, it, there's such a strong tendency to, to, to look at the top uh, because it's, it's a superpower and because that's sort of what so many people are paid to do especially in the United States. Um, so that, that's, that's my takeaway, really, from, from having studied Soviet hippies. Um, you know, I, I have a, a question about, like, the, the, the more global context, or even if we want to relegate it to the second and first world um, in this period of the 70s, because here you, you really do, beginning in the 19, you know, 50s, but really accelerating into the 60s and 70s, you really have an explosion of all sorts of alternative cultures and, you know, things that we can identify as a subculture or a counterculture. And it seems to me, too, another thing that I take away from a lot of this is that the Soviet Union in this period is part of that more international trend of a feeling of alienation and the need to seek out other types of communities of belonging that are, you know, outside or, you know, a foot outside of the dominant culture. Um, I, I don't know if you have any comments about that. No, I, I do. I mean, what I, because um, I have sort of started to uh, written a little bit about sort of putting it into a more global 1970s context. And what I find is that it's a time when there is a general uh, turn towards uh, and a more emotionally loaded, um, I don't even want to say politics, but society, uh, culture, politics. Um, and it's that that really is, is global. And the hippies are, of course, at the forefront. But the hippies, you know, they are only the tip of an iceberg. Um, they're sort of like, I always say, they're kind of the, 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 the lap mouse. They, they, they're the one where you... you you can see it all the most extreme, but of course, a lot of the things the hippies do, this kind of alternative universes, the spaces, et cetera, that happens um, in society um, at large. I mean, I see that um, Alexei Galobov is, is, is here. I mean, he writes about that um, in, in the garage, the uh, training room, the staircase. Um, these are all spaces. Um, and it's just the hippies sort of do it particularly intense. Therefore, I found them a, a particularly worthwhile kind of laboratory to to explore these trends but um 
And I think it has something to do with, uh, with a turn away from um, the rational and the ideological. And I think, of course, that has both good and bad consequences. And I must say, I mean, the, the sort of kind of uh, world we live in now where we have this incredibly emotional divide, I think, is also um, a consequence of, of what was started um, in the 70s for, for better or for worse. Um, and... So I, I see the Soviet Union very much there in in a in a global trend. Um, but it was interesting. I, I think I always was oscillating for ten years of how to write that book. I mean, write it as a sort of um, a Soviet version of a global movement, or um, um, a sort of global movement which has a sort of kind of Soviet uh, dependence. And the more I researched, the more I realized it is after all a Soviet story. I sort of kind of wanted to write a more global story, and there is a lot of globality in it because I make that constant comparison. Um, but um, I think one also, you know, we're doing global history is also sometimes of showcasing the limits of global history. And um, I felt that um, the hippie started out very global and became a more and more Soviet story. Yeah, so let me ask you, so what was Soviet about them? Well, I mean, the way how they arranged themselves was their own habitat, which of course shaped their own practices. Um, they became basically this perfect fungus on this rotting uh, stem of late socialism. Um, uh, but that's basically, um, and 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 of course, the moment you take the fungus off of uh, of the the wood, um, it, it won't um, exist anymore, and, and that is exactly uh, what happened. So they are Soviet in so many little. Ways And then, of course, when they had the encounter in the West in the 90s, a lot of them actually realized they didn't like the West so much. And um, it's, 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 it's a very difficult one because when I wrote the book, I would have said, well, most people I interviewed were broadly what I would have called patriotic stroke nationalist. But as Putin remains in power and as there are more and more issues which galvanize people, and funny enough, for the hippies, it was the um, the tearing um, down of the Khrushchevs uh, in Moscow, which actually got them into anti-government action. Um, the less that is true. But I mean, definitely like in 2014, at the height of the Ukrainian conflict, um, there was, I mean, the Baltic and Ukrainian hippies obviously had their own views, but um, most of the people interviewed uh, were very much in broadly in agreement with, with Putin's foreign policy. And, uh, but as I say, that, that's, it's, it's, things shift. And, and even when I wrote my epilogue, um, that was already still a different time than it is now. So for the Russian edition, I'm actually rewriting the epilogues like it. That was Juliana first. Juliana First is the head of the Communist and Society Department at the Leibniz Center for Contemporary History. She's the author or editor of several books and articles on Soviet youth culture, marginality, and counterculture in late Soviet socialism. Her first book was Stalin's Last Generation, Soviet Post-War Youth and the Emergence of Mature Socialism, published by Oxford University Press in 2010. Her new book is Flowers Through Concrete, Explorations in the Soviet Hippie Land and Beyond, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. So we just heard this this fascinating interview with uh, Juliana First about hippies in the Soviet Union. And so I was wondering, what are some of the thoughts you had after, after hearing this? Just like you, I didn't know much about Soviet hippies. I didn't know they existed. So a lot of this was new to me. Um, I guess I was really uh, 
intrigued by the conversation about playing the mad and this whole um yeah the, the, this whole like system that they developed in well I, I don't know if you call it you can call it a system but like a way of getting around the system and like not serving in the army but I was yeah I was particularly interested in this one point she made that um you know how fine the line was between kind of playing the mad and really getting stuck in that space and never being able to come back yeah, that reminds me of something that I, you know, and this is a reference back to our introduction and, and this idea of defining the boundaries. And and for this subculture, not only, and for many subcultures, um, it's a dynamic between the internal self-policing, but also the role of the authorities. And here we can speak of authority writ large. It could be like in this case with the hippies, the KGB harassing them and the police harassing them, Right. You know, this moment in 1971 where they have this protest and as a result, there's a crackdown and the movement, quote unquote, um, shrinks and becomes more, you know, again, in this situation, more self-policing in a variety of ways. So, yeah, I think this fine line between uh, utilizing madness as a way to circumvent the authorities and then the authorities using madness as a way to police and discipline and punish, um, to reference a very famous book, uh, um, <laughs> is exactly, is, is, you know, really it's part of that overall dynamic and shaping the subculture. Like, even though, and this goes to something else she said, like, even though how much the subculture is outside or marginal, it's still inside uh, the dominant culture. Right. And I mean, also, apart from the horrors of, you know, the psychiatric ward in the Soviet Union, it's it's also like the idea of playing the mad um, is also about, um, you know, the question of what the norm is, right? So like, um, we could say that, you know, for some Soviet hippies were freaks, crazies. They, 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 they were confused. Maybe they were naive. They were mad. Right. Um, but for them, <laughs> maybe it was quite the opposite. And I mean, I'm interested in this question of madness for, I don't know. Yeah. Personal reasons. And yeah, I, I don't know where I'm going with that. I guess it's just this idea of norm and like how in fact flexible and shifting that notion is and depending on, you know, yeah, the society you belong to, your individual beliefs and like your upbringing. Um, yeah, you could expand or shrink drastically. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, I wanted to ask you um, what you thought about one point she made, which I think is really interesting and um, and provocative. And that is, she says at one point that the Soviet system was quite fertile ground for these subcultures to persist. And she made this really interesting comparison with like, say, hippiedom in, say, the United States was eventually commercialized. And, and you know, this, of course, goes back to my own personal experience and like punk. But I, it's really ironic that 
you know, the Soviet system, because it didn't commercialize, it didn't normalize these subcultures, it couldn't, they allowed for them to continue. Yeah, I think she, she, she makes a very important point that we probably shouldn't just, uh, I think that the term counterculture is a bit misleading. I wouldn't view it in those oppositional terms as something against the other, even though, even though I guess members of a particular counterculture probably would say so, like, you know, probably hippies would say so that they're like against blah, blah, blah. I cannot help but think about, you know, I view it in terms of affordances. So like Soviet hippies existed in the way that they did because the Soviet society uh, provided a certain set of affordances and like opportunities, you know, and like restricted, but also uh, allowed it to thrive in a very specific way. So in a in a sense, it's not like oppositional, it's kind of symbiotic. And I, I thought that that's what she meant. And I wish to elaborate on that point a bit more. Uh, right. And once the system, once the Soviet Union collapsed, then Soviet hippies vanished as well, because they were kind of, you know, attuned to uh, a particular world order that was no more. Right, right. Yeah, this issue, I, I, a question that I failed to ask her um, is, and that was another thing that interested me, um, is the class dynamic. So, you know, she mentions a few times that, I mean, essentially, and this is the case for, for many Soviet subcultures, they're children of the nomenklatura, right? They're essentially the elite, the children of the elite in Soviet society. And <clears throat> I think the class position meaning they have the means and the access to not only be a part of a subculture, but also to have the means to consume the necessary things to be part of a subculture, right? The music, the clothes, um, other things is, is tied to their class in the Soviet uh, context. So did you have any other thoughts about the interview or Soviet hippies? Yeah, I thought, well, speaking of uh, the West and, you know, Soviet hippies um, taking, like, importing everything through the West. I thought it was interesting that their position was also, that their position was, was both to emulate something that was American, which was in and of itself countercultural because they were in the Soviet Union, but at the same time, hippies this, themselves were anti-American and in a way sort of, um, a kind of a milder version of, you know, socialists or even communists. So <laughs> I thought that was like a very interesting mix that they had to somehow navigate. That they were like anti, anti, anti. <laughs> in a way. Yeah, it's it's it that kind of third position. You know, it also makes me think of these like other small groups that prop up in in the Soviet Union uh, throughout the whole period, honestly, of these like leftists who are anti-Soviet, but also are pro-socialist or pro-communist and how they navigate themselves vis-a-vis -vis the, the 
dominant society, right? And a lot of their a lot of their ideas and and positions, I mean, they're different shades of Soviet life rather than actually counter to it. Yeah, I thought I thought um, that her working definition of what a hippie is is um, is a productive one, right? She talks about the fact that she mostly followed self definitions, um, especially at the beginning, uh, and I think it's a great way to approach the topic. Um, yeah, particularly because <laughs> she soon found out there were so many controversies around that and debates among like Soviet hippies themselves. Um, and later on, she kind of like talks about how the state began to ascribe certain groups of people to hippies uh, by some, you know, judging by some external um, criteria. I don't know. I th- I just think that, and like as an anthropologist, I think that was a great approach. Uh, yeah, that allowed her to canvas a lot more people into her net than she would if she followed some kind of formal, uh, you know, uh, external definition. You know, the other thing too, like maybe this speaks to your anthrop- anthropology training, but this whole idea of she's producing this work of scholarship. And then there are these groups of hippies online who, you know, machine translate her book and then have discussions about it. It becomes a, it becomes really interesting. And and I said this in the interview, it's at this, particularly around the persecution, it, it almost like allowed for a space for some of these people to go through or work through their trauma in these online communities of being persecuted. And I always find it interesting, like what happens when your subject reads your, your work? Um, is that, does that concern you as an anthropologist? Like, cause you deal with living people as opposed to I deal with the dead <laughs> or at least try to. And now we as anthropologists mostly deal with people who are, you know, connected, who are literate, who are educated enough um, to, you know, not only read us, but also contest what we the, the the research that we've done. So yeah, absolutely it does. And I th- but it I think it also makes our work much more um, uh, challenging and interesting in a way because you have to yeah you have to reflect on uh, you can no longer be this you know white. Um, you know, you cannot put your anthropology hat and um, be, be, be the only expert in the room. You're not. Uh, and, but, but I think, yeah, it, it like introduces these elements of like self-reflection and negotiation and discussion with people. And, you know, maybe even, you know, for example, a friend of mine, he wrote a book together with a South American migrant, right? And like this this guy, he went over the manuscript and then like he had to rewrite certain parts because he was not, 
you know, happy with how it came out, etc. So I think it's just a very different way of doing anthropology. And I think in terms of ethics, it's a much more equi- equitable one. And yeah, um, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting challenge to have, I think. Well, thank you. Thank you for your comments and insight. Well, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova, as you know. And the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. So if you love this podcast or even mildly like it, just uh, please do us a favor and share it on social media and tell your friends and family about it. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the srbpodcast.org website and let us know what you think of our interviews and our discussions. And as always, if you want to support us, we certainly welcome it. The SRB podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor. It relies on the support of individuals like you and other institutions to keep it completely free without any ads or paywalls. Um, so please help us keep it that way. So go to srbpodcast.org and become a member of the SRB Table of Ranks. And until next week, bye. you